ahead, if you're not there, and go ahead and open to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. And I'm going to start by reading verses 1 and 2 because right off the bat in verses 1 and 2, we learn three very important things about God if we stop to really see what those verses are saying. So verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying. So the first thing we learn in this verse is that he is the God who speaks. He speaks. He speaks to us. He has already spoken to us. And sometimes I I just want like a new word from him, you know. But he's already spoken everything I need right here. And it's just whether or not I'm willing to listen. So he is the God who speaks, and he is the God who has already spoken. And as we mentioned last week, it's really cool that he spoke these commandments out loud from the mountain to the Israelites. They heard his voice say these commandments. That's pretty cool. So he is the God who speaks. Uh, if you want to write down Isaiah 45, 19. I love Isaiah, and I, there's so many great verses in the book of Isaiah. But 45, 19 says, I have, this is the Lord speaking, I have not spoken in secret somewhere in a land or somewhere in a land of darkness, meaning like over (coughs) some dark corner. I did not say to the descendants of Jacob, seek me in a wasteland, meaning, you know, try and seek me. You'll never find me. He didn't say that to them. No, he said, I am the Lord who speaks righteously, who declares what is right. So he's the one who speaks right. He's the only one who speaks all truth. He is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, right? And he has spoken it. He has declared it so that we can hear him, so that we can know it. So he hasn't hidden his word from us, not hiding who he is at all. I love that. He's the God who speaks. The second thing we learn, if we look at verse 2, I am the Lord your God. Like, if you write in your Bible, you can put a little square or circle around the word your I am your God. He is the God who relates to us. He is a personal God. He wants this to be a personal relationship with him in which we're going to talk to him about these commandments. You know, we're going to walk with him and try and follow these commandments. So he is your God. He's He's the God who relates to us. The third thing then, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he is the God who acts and redeems. That's the third thing we see here. He is the God who acts and redeems. He brought them out of the land of slavery. And he has taken us from being slaves to sin to servants of righteousness. He has taken us from the domain of darkness to light. He's done the same thing for us. He's transferred us from that slavery into um, something amazing to be able to serve him. So we see that he is the God who speaks, he is the God who relates, and he is the God who acts and redeems. Now, I'm not really going to get into this very much. If you want to look into it more, you can. But um, he actually, in he, he started in, when, he, when the Lord started writing this in chapter 19, and then we see through chapter 20 and then all the way to 24, he's actually using a, a method of communication with them that they would have been familiar with. So it was, I don't actually know the name of it. I just wrote down that it's a treaty method um, that a king would have used whenever he uh, took over a new group of people. So if like a king came in and then there was a vassal king, this is written in such a manner 
that it's like that. Like he's the king coming in and he's taking over. And they would have understood that apparently, um, the way that it's written. And there were several things that, that they would have seen. The first thing that, that um, is proclaimed in this treaty is there's a formal identification of the new ruler. And so we see here, we see the Lord proclaim who he is. So this is, what I'm trying to say is that this is written in a manner in which the Israelites would have understood what was going on. Okay? Um, and then after that, the second thing in the treaty is that the, the, there's a review of the history between the parties. So we saw the Lord review that history at the beginning of chapter 19. We see him do it again here. I have called you out of slavery. Um, he's reviewing that history. The third thing in that is there's a requirement of loyalty, which we talked about in week one. Obey me, and these things will happen. So um, that's the fourth thing then. There's, a st there's stipulations regarding future conduct whenever there was a treaty like this. So we see that. We're seeing future conduct declared here. This is what you need to act like. And then as we move on, we'll see positive and negative consequences for obedience. And that was also usually included in this treaty that, you know, if, I guess it was an E, I don't know. I don't know the name of it, but um, the treaty method for their time. And then the sixth would have been instructions for copying, storing, and publicly reading the covenant. That also would have been included in the treaty. And we see that also. We see Moses later is going to write all these things down. We're going to see God give instructions for having these on two stone tablets and keeping them in the ark. So uh, we see all of these things come out through this treaty method. So that's kind of a side note. I just thought it was kind of neat that the Lord spoke to them in a way in which they could understand in their time period. So sometimes we might see things repeated like, yeah, he just said this. But I think it's because it's, it's well, it's great for us to hear it again. It's good reminders, but it's also written in a format that we probably just don't understand today. But they would have understood. It made sense to them. Now, the question that I have wrestled with over the last couple of weeks, and I think it's really good to, to explore this, is are we still obligated to keep the Ten Commandments? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So our first reaction is absolutely. But then I got thinking, can I back that up? Why am I still obligated to keep the Ten Commandments? And so I really dove into that. And that's where I want to start tonight before we kind of go through some of them. Um, I made the comment a couple weeks ago that, um, that we are still obligated. And I do agree. Um, but I think to, to actually say that we are still under the Ten Commandments, I would say it's both right and wrong now that I've studied it. Okay, so we'll kind of flesh that out here. The first thing that we need to do to flesh that out, though, is to understand why did God give us the law? So that's the first place we need to step into if we're going to decide, or if we're going to answer the question, are we still obligated? Well, why did God give us the law in the first place? Any quick thoughts on that? Before I take you somewhere? Romans 3, if you want to write it down. You don't have to go there. I'm going to give you a lot of verses in a short amount of time. So Romans 3, 19 and 20 does a great job of describing for us why we have the law. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So why do we have the law? Our sin. Our sin. We have it so that God can hold us accountable. 
so that the whole world can be accountable to God, as it says here. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there it is. So the law allows us to realize we're sinners and we need a savior. So it helps us to be able to see that. So why do we have the law? Number one, we have the law to reveal our sinfulness to us. And that's where you can jot down Romans 3, 19 and 20. We have the law also to reveal the heart of God. When you start looking at the law, you can really get a great idea of what our God stands for, what he wants, what he dislikes. So you, it reveals the heart of God. And also I wrote down that it reveals the holiness of God. God's heart, but also God's holiness. Because he kept all of this perfectly. So the law is there to make God's standards clear to us so that we know what's right from wrong and also to help restrain wrong behavior because the intentions of the heart are evil all the time without Jesus. So that's why we have the law. So is the law of God still important? Yes. It's easy to say yes, but I say yes because those things are still true. We still need to know God's heart. It still declares God's holiness. It, the law still makes known to us our sinfulness. There's this, I don't know if you guys have ever done um, The Way of the Master. I think that's what it's called. But it's an, it's an evangelistic program in how to share the gospel. And the interesting thing is you go around asking people, have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? And then you like ask them, well, have you ever said a lie? And they're like, uh, yes. Well, have you ever stolen anything? Uh, yes. Well, by your own admission, then you are a, a thief and a liar. And have you ever been angry with your brother? And it, he goes like, well, then you're a murderer, according to God. And it just helps people realize, like, you just see, there's, you could watch it on YouTube. And you could see people's faces just, like, melt. Like, to realize your sinfulness is to realize you need a savior. And so, there are a few times where they're like, yeah, I want to know more about God now. And there's other times that they're like, I don't care. You know, they're not ready to hear it, and they just walk away. But that's the great thing about the law is it helps us see it, and it's still true. But then what do we do with verses like Galatians 5.18 or Romans 6.14 that say that we are no longer under the law? What does that mean? So I think it's really important to figure that out. I started in Matthew 5. So write down Matthew 5. 17 through 19. And you guys will know it once I start saying it. But this is Jesus talking, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. And he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We know that. We've already talked about that. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And when we spoke about it a couple weeks ago, there's the moral law, which is what we're talking about tonight. There's the civil law, which helped them to be a nation. They were going to be their own people um, serving God. And then there is the ceremonial laws, which Jesus completely stopped after his last and final sacrifice. But that was all the burnt sacrifice, all the things that they had to do that all picture Jesus. Um, it, when you look at all of it, all pictures him. So there's three parts to that law. He came to fulfill all of it, all right? Now, verse 30, no, no, verse 18 there says, For truly I say to you, 
And this is what I think is important. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. I love the way the Lord speaks. Not even a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's not going anywhere. And then he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's obviously telling us, don't even think about relaxing these. Like, they're very important. I don't want to be the one that tells you, you know what? The Sabbath isn't mentioned in the New Testament, so it's fine. You don't have to go to church. You're like, I don't want to be the one that relaxes them just because if there's grace, you know, I want to tell you, no, these are still very good for you. I think Jesus is telling him, I fulfilled them, but the law hasn't gone anywhere. He just told us it's not going anywhere until not even one dot, not even one iota will pass away until everything is accomplished. So we still have the law. Okay, so then I'm going to, I read Galatians a lot, which helped. But Galatians 3, 23 and 24, uh, Paul says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so until faith we were prisoners under the law that's what it's saying we were held captive under the law verse 24 so then the law was our guardian until christ came in order that we might be justified by faith so the law was our guardian until christ came so makes it sound like to me okay if you're not under christ you are under the law but when you come by grace through faith to salvation under Christ, you're not under the law anymore. You're under Christ. Okay, I'm going to make another distinction here. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says something really interesting. 19 and verse, yeah. So 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And I'll read a couple verses. He says, for though I am free from all. So he's saying, I'm not under the law anymore. I am free, Okay. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he says, in a parenthesis, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God. Now, this is interesting. He says, I'm not outside the law of God, though, but under the law of Christ. So he makes this distinction between the law of God and the law of Christ. So it almost gets to sound very confusing, but as I studied that, when the law of God is referred to, it is referring to the Ten Commandments. It is referring to God's law. But he is referring here to the... there's. There's like a new ruler in town. I'm under Christ. It's kind of what he's saying. And I follow Christ's laws. The interesting is, the thing is then, they match up. So though we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore, we are under Christ. Jesus says, what does he say to do? Love God, love others, love your neighbor as yourself. And he tells us that's the sum of all the law. So though we're no longer under the law, let's say this is the law and this is, this is Christ over here. We were here. And then, and then when we placed our faith in Jesus, 
we became over here, right? The law is still there, but now we're under Christ. So the law can no longer condemn us. We can't go to hell because of that. We have Jesus' blood. We have, we're, we're justified. So we are just as if we never sinned being over here. So the law holds nothing over us, but it's still there. And so out of love for God, we obey it. So does that make sense? So we're not, are we under the Ten Commandments? I would say no. We're not under the Ten Commandments. We're under Christ. But Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this summarizes the commandments. And so because of that, Jesus said, I want you to obey these. So we do it out of love. So we're not under the law. It can't condemn us anymore. But he wants us to, to follow them out of love. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. I thought that was just, I thought, we, I just want to talk about that because I think that comes up sometimes. Like, oh, do I still have to obey the Ten Commandments? And a good way to say it is, well, I obey it because I love Jesus. You know, I'm not under the law anymore. It, has, it holds nothing over me. I'm justified in Christ. I'm just as if I never sinned because of the blood of Jesus. But out of love for God, I'm going to obey them. And that's what Jesus says. Like, John 14, 21, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Um, he also says it in 1 John, that love for God looks like obeying his commands. So there's an outpouring of love out of thankfulness for what Christ has done for us that then gives us that desire that says, yeah, I, I want to do those things. I'm, I'm going to obey those. Not to mention that the law is good. It's actually good when you start to break it down. It, it's great for us to follow it. And Romans 7, 12, if you want a reference for that, says that the law is holy. We talked about holiness last week, so it's set apart. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. That's Romans 7, 12. It is good. It is good for us. Also, I think we need to remember that to obey the law is to look like Christ. And we are to look like him. So to obey it is to look like him. He kept it perfectly, and he has told us to be imitators of, of him. Be an imitator of God. Ephesians 5.1 Walk in love as Christ has also loved us and gave himself up for us. So love God, love your neighbor. That fulfills the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfilled that, and he said, okay, now you do and go. You go and do as I did. And so we do out of love for him. So how are we doing with all that? Does that make sense? Does that help answer that question? Yeah. Okay, so we keep the Ten Commandments still, hopefully. We try. We're not going to keep them perfectly. Um, but there's grace, but out of love for God. But it no longer can condemn us. It no longer holds any sway over us. But we're over here now. And the law is over here, but because we love the Lord, we're going to seek to obey the law. So, okay, cool. All right. We are not under the law, but out of love for God, we are to keep the law. So the first commandment then, <clears throat> have no other gods before me. In the positive way, I love stating them in a positive way. I don't know if that helped you guys. But that would mean love God only and wholeheartedly. Love him alone and love him wholeheartedly. Now, why do you guys think 
And we're probably on page 20. No, we're not. 19, 20. I think that's the one where you were. Yeah, okay. Probably on page 20. Why do you guys think that God chose monotheism, one God, loving only him as the first commandment? Why would that be so important? All the times that I'm going down the wrong path, I'm putting myself first. Mm-hmm. I'm not putting the Lord first. I'm not making decisions based off of putting him first. Yeah. Now, in the Israelites, from their perspective, they couldn't stay in the wilderness forever. So they're off by themselves. You know, it's easy sometimes. Like, you go to, when I went to church camp, like, it was almost real easy to be, like, on fire for God and, like, wholly devoted to him. And then the second I got back home and started going back to school again, it was like, oh, this is hard. Even if I didn't subconsciously realize how hard it was, it's just all these things come flying at you. Well, they can't stay in the wilderness forever. At some point, they're going to need to reintegrate themselves into the world, especially if they're to be a kingdom of priests taking you know, um, news of the Lord all over the world. They're going to have to re-enter and they're going to need to understand when they go into these polytheistic nations, they cannot serve those gods. They cannot. It's going to be so tempting for them, but they can't. They need to only serve God. So they, they came out of polytheistic Egypt, but God planned to lead them into polytheistic Canaan. And so this was super important. They needed to realize you can't. It's not me and all of them. It's just me. They didn't keep it, did they? They served Baal. They served all kinds of false gods. They thought they could. At the same time, they also tried to keep doing their sacrifices to the Lord. But it's not how it works. God said, only me. Now, I think this is cool. Um, If you think about the gods the Egyptians worshipped, if we go back to then, there, there was like sun, you know, the sun god, which is why God brought darkness. There would have been moon and stars and earth and sky and all those things. Well, in the six days of creation, if you think about how they're written, it squelches any thought of worshiping any of those things. Because God's like, I made the sun, I made the moon, I made the stars, I made the sky, I made the sea. So by showing that he created all of them, he's saying, you don't need to worship those things. You worship me. That's kind of cool to think about how he wrote those and that that would have been given to the Israelites. They would have known the creation account and how that hopefully would have kept them from serving false gods that weren't real. Which is your first principle for tonight. There's so much information in this, it's kind of hard to sum it up in three principles, but the first commandment, this is your principle, the first commandment is an invitation to reality. That's really what it is. The first commandment is an invitation to reality. First commandment is an invitation to reality. There is only one God. That's it. That is reality. That there is only one God. So he is inviting 
all of humanity to, to come and worship him if they would only recognize this commandment. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45.5. And then he goes, there is no God but me. And that's like a drop the mic verse to me. Like, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. Now, I don't feel like we're real tempted to like go out and start worshiping the sun God or the moon God or those kinds of things. But we are definitely tempted to not love God with all of our heart. And that's where this comes in. You know, that's where this it comes into play in the New Testament then, which reminds me, I did make you guys a handout. And this handout, we can just start me in the middle. Um, I better keep one. Gives you all the commandments on the left. And then it you'll be able to see where that commandment is referenced in the New Testament and where Jesus talks about that commandment. So you can see the consistency throughout all of Scripture with these commandments. We won't go through all of this now, but this would just be a great thing for you to keep in your book. Or if you want to look at one of the commandments more, if you feel like there's one that is just hard for you or like you just love to study more, or hopefully this will give you some reference points as to where you'll find it in the Old Testament where there's related New Testament passages and then where Jesus talked about it. So across the top, you'll see the commandment is in the first column. The commandments are listed twice in the Old Testament, in Exodus, here in Exodus, and then also again in Deuteronomy 5. And then, and that is not an exhaustive list of related Old Testament passages. <laughs> Just the beginning for you. You'll find a lot more. But that is a bunch of related Old Testament passages to that commandment. And then you'll have the related New Testament passages where you might see it. And then where Jesus referenced it also. So I thought that might help a little bit. Just being able to see the consistency. I have the as I look through the entire Bible. But as I was saying, I'd say there, you know, how did Jesus reference this commandment? Well, I think one of the ways is that he said you can't have two masters. You can't. In his example, it was, we either hate the one or we love the other. We can't be voted, devoted to both. And what was his example? Money. Money was his example. Yep. He's like, you can't love, you can't put me and money, both of us, first. One of us got to be first. And if you love money more, basically what he's saying is, if you love money, then do you hate me? You know what I mean? That, that's the love God wants us to have for them. him is... He contrasts it with love or hate. It's like he doesn't give us a middle ground there. But we like to often think, you know, okay, well, um, you know, I, I love the Lord, but oh, my kids, you know, like I want to put my kids first. But no, God says, no, you put me first. And what about, or the American dream, you know, or whatever it is. Like we want to chase those things and God's like, no, put me first. It'll just, like Amy was saying, go so much better for you. If you just put the Lord first, not that you'll get everything you want, but the satisfaction of the soul is found in putting God first. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Uh, any thoughts on that one? I got to keep this moving so we can continue to talk about all of them. 
The second one, do not make, worship, or serve any carved images. So what would be a positive way of stating that command? Any thoughts? Let's see, where are we? Page 20, I think. Still. Would you, how would you state that positively? Question six. On page 20. Any thoughts? Worship God only. Worship God only. Yep. The second commandment, worship God in the right way. So not only do we worship God, but we need to be worshiping him in the right way. He said, don't make any carved images. Don't, you know, worship me rightly. That's really what that commandment comes down to. Worship me properly. Worship me the way I deserve to be worshiped. So why do you think uh, God does not want us creating visual representations of him? What is the danger to that? Why is that not a good idea? We're worshiping something that's not him. We're worshiping something that's not him? Yeah, exactly. What? So we miss it everywhere else. We miss seeing him everywhere else. Mm, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And he said he has made himself known to us. That's in Romans 1. We diminish his holiness. We diminish his holiness. Yes. He's so holy and superior that no visual representation would do justice. Exactly. It's just, it's just a, it's a, it ghastly falls short. You know I mean? There's just, there's no way, like we talked about last week when we looked at his holiness, that we could possibly put him into any type of visualization. It's not possible. So he said, just don't even try. Don't, don't do it. Yes, exactly. So should we not use nativities as decoration? I don't think that's wrong because it, I mean, Jesus did come as a baby. You know, I don't know how you guys, what you guys would say to that. I think it's a beautiful scene that we're depicting, mm-hmm. but maybe not necessarily. Like, I don't think that, but we're, and we're not bowing down to the nativity. Sure. Right. You know, we're not worshiping it. Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, thoughts on that? Maybe. At the conclusion of the second commandment, then, God mentions future generations. So I think it's interesting that when you think about this one, we're saying, you know, don't have any carved images. He mentions future generations. So this is question seven on, on page 20. What effect could false visible representations of God have on future generations? I mean, to your point, Tony, if that was the only thing we had was a nativity, and that's all we ever talked about, mm-hmm. what kind of effect would that have on future generations? It would completely diminish what they know of God. He would know, they would know that he was born. And it, right. But you, know, you see what I'm saying there. So what effect could that have if we have idols or if we have crafted things that we bow down to? Or not even crafted. We craft him in our mind a certain way and think that God is a certain way. And then what effect does that have on my kids? A big effect. A big effect. Yes. Eventually, by the time, I mean, even when your grandchildren come along, then God would probably be completely out of the picture. It would just be an image. Absolutely. Lawsuit, like really like on our hearts and in 
true relationship with him would be gone. I think that that hits the nail on the head right there. So there can, you can't have any of that. You need to worship him rightly, properly, according to who he is in his word, so that the next generation can do the same. So that, that. Yes. Like if you're not literally such a great visual to think of that game telephone. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah. It is, and it does not take long to get so messed up. Yeah. You know, and then the next generation doesn't even know who God is or doesn't know the right things about him. Absolutely. Now, the thing about this is that we don't have to carve things out of wood or metal to break this commandment. We break it any time we whittle down God's transcendence or we diminish his sovereignty or we chisel away at his omnipotence, thinking less of him than he really is, um, making him a lesser, a more palatable God, you know, someone that we just love, you know, like the big grandpa on the sky. That is wrong. That is, that is making an image in our mind of who he is instead of worshiping as him. We don't always like to think of him as with wrath and justice and but that's the true God there. So take, for example, uh, the prosperity gospel. That's a false God. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Yes, it's all good. That is not the true God. And so you're worshiping an idol in that sense. Anyone who worships the God of the prosperity gospel has made God into a God who owes us something. And God owes us absolutely nothing. Instead, we owe him everything So the true God is the God who always knows what's best for us and will always do what's right for us and will provide for all that we need to accomplish his will. That's the true God. You see the difference, though, in how easy it is to all of a sudden break the second commandment, worship God however we want to, this image in our mind, not not necessarily, you know, going out to the woodshop and carving something. Though I know in this part of the world it doesn't happen. In other parts of the world it does. So... Don't want to be naive and be like, this never happens anymore. I, I mean, I'm sure if we went to other countries, we would just see idols everywhere. It's just we don't see them here. But we definitely make them in our hearts. I'd say that. I think in some ways we see it here without, I guess, not actual hard statues. Mm-hmm. We see it in the day-to-day, though, just people make God into who they want. To be. Mm-hmm. Or they worship like Brady. That's the same. Yes, that's true. Good point. Good point. Like we, yeah, like celebrities, but then I was like, oh, but we're not making them. But like characters that we make. Good point. Argue that are Americans are even kids who like worshiping that. Yes. Elsa or right. Yeah. Right. So that would be having another god also. You're breaking the first and the second. <laughs> yeah, and social media does not help with that one bit. Uh, okay, now here's where I want to go with this one is question nine on page 21. It says to look up John 14, 9 and Colossians 1, 13 through 15. What physical representation has the eternal, invisible, and holy God given us of himself? There it is. Jesus. Jesus. There it is. That's right. Every week we have to have it somewhere. Right. Yes. I think that's so cool though. Like God knows, I think, what a visible people we are. And he gave us Jesus, 
who is a representation of exactly who he is. This is so cool. And then what else? What, what is the other, <clears throat> what, well, what role does the church play then in that physical representation? We are to be imitators of God, right? So who else is the representation? Us. We are image bearers of God. So we don't need to make images of God. We need to be the image of God. And that's what God has called us to do. We don't need to make images of God. We need to be the image of God. Absolutely. And that's another reason that God does not want us creating images. It's because it's not needed. Because he already created images. He created us. Made in his image. And then believers, he gives us his Holy Spirit. So that we can walk in his love. We can show his light to the rest of the world. We can be his image. I think that's pretty cool. Here's what else is cool. Following the Ten Commandments, then, will result in bearing the image of God. If you followed these, you would, you would perfectly bear the image of God. That's pretty cool, too. So your second principle is the Ten Commandments teach us how to be the image of God. The Ten Commandments teach us how to be the image of God. Ten Commandments teach us how to be the image of God. So there we go. We don't need to make images. We just need to be the image. The third commandment then. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Might meddle here a little bit. (laughs) I think it's worth meddling. So what's the positive to that? If you're not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain, how would you state that positively? Honor the name of God at all times when speaking. Yes. Honor God's name. Mm -hmm. Don't speak it improperly, inappropriately. This one's a big one. So what do you think it means? This is question two on page 22. What do you think it means to take God's name in vain? Use it in a disrespectful way. Use it in a disrespectful way. Yep, it happens all the time, doesn't it? It's like nails on a chalkboard. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, guys, this is so important because God says, I mean, we're not under the law anymore, right? So we are under Christ and there is grace. But for those who are under the law, the Lord says, don't do it, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We're talking about the holy name of God. And yet it just, you know, people just say it all the time. Oh, my! You know, and just blaspheme his name left and right. And I think, you know, what do we do in those situations? Do we stand up for it? Do we ask him not to? Actually, I will give my, my little boys some credit here because we've made them so sensitive to this that they will actually have to talk with Ethan because Ethan 
some little kid, you know, took the Lord's name in vain in class, and he said, that's a bad word. Don't do that. And I'm like, Ethan, the Lord's name is not a bad word. It's wrong to say it in, the, in a bad way like that. I was like, you're speaking the wonderful name of the Lord. Like, they're saying it. So he had to go back and rephrase it, but he will stand up and ask kids. Sure, they do that to, like, their right? family. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I know. I was thinking it, but you said it. Yeah. I know. Yeah. They will. The little ones will. They will. They will for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good check for us, too. Like, our kids, you know, those little ones are still pretty sensitive. How sensitive to it are we? And then how sensitive, how easy is it to get desensitized? I just tell my kids at school, because they're, I hear it a lot, if they're little first graders. Yeah. It's like, oh my. Mm-hmm. And I just say, we don't say God unless we are talking to him or we are praying. And I just leave it at that. And mm-hmm. I will stop them. Mm-hmm. And so then, the wonderful thing is then the other kids become the voice box then somebody else will say it and then you'll hear another little one say remember mrs friend said we don't say that unless we're talking to god yeah praying to god i love that school too and that's what she always said she heard it all the time yes you better be praying if you're saying and they just take it and they'll listen and they'll repeat that's what she said she said they never spoke back to her i mean she would just say better be praying if you're saying yeah. that. And she said they never would speak back to her. But then mm. just like that, she would hear them say to each other, you better be Mrs. praying. Johnson says you better be praying if you're saying mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a simple way that, I mean, even maybe hopefully we could do it respectfully to other people, even peers or, well, you know what? That's my board. <laughs> somebody, she said, because if I hear somebody say that, I just yell behind them, our Lord and Savior! Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay, that could be. Yes, just proclaim it. <laughs> I love that. Emily, I'm sure you hear it a lot at school. And I'm sure that's hard. Yeah, I don't mean to. It's a constant thing at school, and sometimes it's hard to know. Because I know they say it at home. Yes. And their parents don't stop them. Right. And so it's hard to know when I've crossed the line of being offensive and like, I know we shouldn't be afraid to proclaim it. Right. But sometimes it's hard to know when I'm being the person who's shoving it down their throat. Right. Versus the person who's just saying, hey, that's not right. Right. Like it's hard to know when I've been enough and said it and that's not what I can do and mm-hmm. like plant it there mm-hmm. versus when I'm like being the overbearing one who's just like constantly there sitting on the mm-hmm. other day. Yeah, and it's for hard sure. to know what I'm supposed to do. Yep, because you're, you're to be a witness and love your neighbor and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Win them over for Christ and not just, they're real, and that's the thing. Like, we want people to realize they're sinners, but their real problem, if they're not a believer, is not just that they're taking the Lord's name in vain. Their real problem is that they don't have Christ as their Savior. Like, that's, that's the issue right there. And so, kind of keeping that in mind, I guess, as we interact with the world, but... Try and uplift God's name. I love, though, I hope you guys enjoyed that if you did this day. I think we're on, I don't know what day we're on, but page 20. Yeah. Um, just that God did give us the use of his name. You know? Like, he didn't say that we could never use his name. He said we can praise the name of the Lord. We can 
bless the name. We can call on his name. We're to fight evil in his name. We're to give thanks in his name. So he gave us so many different uses of his name, but we're just to use it appropriately and reverently. And if you want a good book to read, Jen Wilkins' um, Ten Words is all about the Ten Commandments. And it's really good. I have read it twice now and underline it. And it's, it's, it's called The Ten Words by Jen Wilkins. And when she talks about this commandment, it is so convicting. One of the things she says is that even if you are worshiping God, like at church, and your mind is in the wrong place, and yet you're saying God's name or singing it, that is using his name inappropriately. And I was like, oh, oh guilty as charged. Sometimes, I, you know, if you're singing and you're distracted, it's just interesting to stop and think like, okay, yeah, like I'm singing his name, but am I at that point using it inappropriately? Like, just to be that much in reverent, reverence and awe for the Lord and his name and who he is. So if you want to dig deeper into this, then I would highly recommend that book. It's an easy read, too. It's not hard. Um, anything else about this? Thoughts on, on this commandment? Okay. We're moving on, then, to the Sabbath. Commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So this command is the longest and the most detailed of all the commandments. It's also the one most mentioned in the Old Testament. God talks about the Sabbath over and over and over again. However, it's also the only command not necessarily reiterated in the New Testament. So Jesus does talk about the Sabbath, um, but... We don't keep the Sabbath anymore. That was a Jewish, that was on Saturday. We do come to church and get together on the Lord's Day, which is a Sunday. So that new, um, the new believers kind of put that practice into play for us. And Hebrews says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So the scriptures do encourage us, highly encourage us to get together. But really, the only thing Jesus said about the Sabbath was that man was made for the Sabbath and not... The, wait, how is that? Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So it's, it's a gift for us. And then he heals on the Sabbath. The disciples eat on the Sabbath. But um, it's, this is, can get to be a little bit of a sticky one. Um, and a lot of debate can come around this one. But here's my issue with that. If you are debating that, Why? Why? Like, is it because you don't want to go to church? Is it because you don't want it to be true that you need to get together with other believers? Like, why are you debating that? You know, kind of stop, like, think about it. Is it because you want to go to baseball games and football games and skip church all the time and sleep in? Like, if that's your motive, check your heart motivation for why do you want this to not be found or why do you want to argue against it in the New Testament? So... And think about it like that. It's like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. Am I, it's like, are you trying to find a way out of coming to church, basically? But I think the way we have to look at this one is honoring God with our time is what it comes down to. If we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, that includes your time. And I think we have to look at the positive side of this. Like, why is it good for us to honor God with our time? Why is it good for us to get together with other believers? 
why is it good for us to um, once one day a week just have a different schedule? You know, what does that do to our mind? What does that do to our heart? What does that do to our brain? You know, just how does that reset us? And also just remembering, like God gave the Israelites the Sabbath, not only to rest, that rest was a great picture of their trust in their provider, but also to remember. They were to remember two specific things. They were to remember that God was their creator. They were to think back to that and that God was their rescuer. They were to think about their redemption. And so if you think about a pattern of one day out of seven, thinking about your salvation, how is that going to help you? It's going to help keep you on track, right? It's going to help you keep the Lord as number one. It's going to, you know, things are just, it's going to help you keep things in place. So you have to look, I think we have to look at it from that standpoint. So is it good for us? Absolutely it's good for us. You know, thoughts on that? What do you guys think? What's going through your mind right now? Anything? I have a lot of family on my mom's side that I truly believe they have relationships with Christ. Mm-hmm. And, um, but Nick and I have always said that, like, our church family is sometimes closer than our actual family. And yeah. I have an uncle who's really struggling right now, and he's been divorced multiple times, and he's so alone, and I'm just like, you're not in a church. Mm-hmm. You don't have an actual family, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, we don't know how to get them involved. And mm. was like, there's a seat open with us, you know, but right. it doesn't happen. So it's discouraging. But absolutely, we know for us that being a part of the church is where we're supposed to be. And Makes such a big yeah. difference. Yeah. Craig went into an all-out depression when we were quarantined. Oh, yeah. Because he couldn't come to church. I don't know, it was the worst Mother's Day ever. <laughs> like, you be happy today? <laughs> but we do. Like, I, this just goes to show, like, these commands are good for us. You know, not just because it's good to rest, but because it's good to get together with other believers and be in the house of the Lord. And I totally agree with you, Christian. Like, when I think about, I love my family, I have a great family, but then when I think about my church family, I'm just like, oh, I just love my church family. You know, like, just... Yeah. I don't know what I would do it without you guys or different church family. Somebody's coming in. Fishing. 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 Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 it's a big bad. There's a creepy man. There's a creepy man here. Walk over. They can come in. We could ask them some questions. Have you guys answered? No, I'm just kidding. Question five. Uh, okay, so here's a question for you then. Page 25, question 5. Let's think about it this way. What message do we give the world when we prioritize honoring God? On the flip side, what message do we preach when our Sundays don't look any different than any other day? So we're always preaching something by our actions. And that's a big one, I think. You know, if church is a priority, if, if your church family is is a priority, I think that sends a big message to the world. But if it's not, what message does that send? That God doesn't need to be worshipped, or that you know that you can put other things first, that sports can come first, or I mean we had to we had to figure out how we were gonna do that one. Especially with um when Aiden played uh all star baseball. And then a lot of those tournaments were Sunday mornings. 
And we didn't talk about that going into it. We didn't talk about it until it happened. And it kind of hit us in the face. And all of a sudden, he had a tournament, and he was pretty good. And I wanted to see my boy play baseball. And Craig allowed Aiden to go, but we did not go. And my son was playing baseball, and I was at church. And I confess to you, I was livid. I was so mad at Craig. (laughs) for not letting me go watch Aiden play baseball. But he was setting a precedence for our family that we were going to be in church. He did allow Aiden to go. Uh, But it was not a good morning. I should not have been there because my attitude was so wrong. (laughs) But we had to figure out after that, we just were like, okay, from now on, if there's ever a game on a Sunday morning, our kid won't be there. Because I couldn't, my mama heart couldn't handle it. And so going into it now, we know better now. We just are up front with any coaches. We're like, that's fine. They can be on the team. But if there's a game on Sundays there, our child won't, on Sunday morning, our child won't be there. So, but, whew, I was mad. Uh, it was not a good day in our house. <laughs> it's like, you don't have to be so legalistic about it. Like, and I think there's that too. We don't, this is not. The law is not, we're not under the law, right? So it, there is grace. We don't need to be legalistic about it. We're, gonna, we're going to follow these commands out of love for God. But there is grace, right? So we do need to make sure that we're not, you know, being legal. So what is legalism? I think that's interesting to define. Legalism means not that we're going to just follow a bunch of rules, but legalism is gaining salvation by following those rules. It gains us. Um, it does not gain us salvation. You cannot. That's what legalism is. So we don't need to do this, this, and this, and this in order to be saved. So that's the difference. It's kind of like the Old Testament. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. And what a switch in thinking for them, right? That's why it was so hard yeah. for them. We don't. You don't have to be legalistic anymore. I mean, you don't have to do this and this and this to be saved. You just have to have faith, and that's salvation. All right, I think we're, I think I'm running out of time here quickly. Anyway, okay, we'll move on. Um, But just good thoughts to think about. Um, You know, what does it show the next generation? What does it show your kids if church isn't a priority, if sports come first, or all those things? You know, what is that? Are they going to... It's okay to do it, right? Or it's okay to skip or sleep in or just watch it online. We always say that whatever we do a little bit, you know, maybe our, our kids will probably do a lot more of, you know, like just what, what kind of example are we setting for that next generation? And I look around in here and I'm like, you all are setting a great example. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, good thoughts to think about. So, um, okay, honoring father and mother, honoring parents is the fifth commandment. I'm not going to talk about that one a whole lot. I know that one can be hard. Uh, I think if you I think you kind of went over it in your book, thought through that, and how you can honor parents even in the church. If you have parents that are hard to honor and respect, I think the Lord gave us that opportunity then with our church family to honor elders, to honor people within the church to um, obey that commandment. Uh, let's see here. Where are we? I think the bottom line with that one, with honoring your father and mother, is that loving our neighbors starts at home. 
I think that's the bottom line with that one, that it's our, our immediate family is not excluded from being a neighbor. You know, how we do treat our parents or immediate family or even our kids or husband or, you know, all, all of that <coughs> comes into play. Uh, okay, then we move on to the rest of them. So you have the, you have the loving God commandments, and then you have this bridge that is loving your earthly father. You have your heavenly father, your earthly father, and then it bridges into these last five commandments, which are really loving your neighbor. The do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, uh, and do not covet anything of your neighbors. So flip to page 28. And I would just love to hear how you guys finished question five. So I got started for you. Commandment one was all about honor God. And then commandment two was honor God with our thoughts and our worship. Commandment three was honor God with our words. Commandment four, honor God with our time. Five, honor God with our family. How'd you guys fill in six? What'd you say for commandment six? It's do not murder, but honor God with Yeah, our actions towards our towards humans or towards other people. People can make us so mad sometimes. <laughs> but honor God. It's true. With your treatment of others, how you treat others. I mean, Jesus took this the step further. Uh, like Tony was saying, like don't even be angry. You can't don't even be angry with a brother. Uh, what'd you say for commandment seven? It's do not commit adultery. Honor God. Yeah, with our sexuality, with our marriage, absolutely. With our bodies. With our bodies. Love that. Honor God with your body. Yes. Uh, eight is do not steal. And how'd you finish? Honor God with our actions. Yeah. Yep. Don't do it. With integrity. I like that. Honor God with integrity. I said honor God with contentment. But also it can be for 10 too, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay, nine, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Honor God with our mouths. With what, Jenna? I put speaking the truth. Speaking the truth, yes. Yep, honesty about others. So we can speak false testimony just when we gossip. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> a hard one. We might see somebody some way and be like, oh, she's so blah, 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 blah. And then we're telling it to somebody else, but really what we're doing is breaking the ninth commandment and giving false testimony about who that person really is. <sighs> Honor God. <laughs> God, see about others. <laughs> I am not, like, I'm, like, I'm preaching to myself. I'm not over and above these things. Ten, do not covet anything of your neighbors. So how would you say, Honor God. Be satisfied with what you have in your heart. What did you say? Heart. heart. That's what I wrote down too. Honor God in our hearts. Jenna had contentment there. Yeah. Being contentment with what we have and being happy for others. Oh, yeah. that being happy for others. That can be a struggle. <laughs> that is not easy. But 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. So oh, man, when you can celebrate the victories of others and have that contentment in your heart, whew, you're 